This is Knight Rider, Season 4, Episode 15. Title is Deadly Nightshade. Director is Sidney Hayers. Writer is Philip John Tyler. Original air date is January the 24th, 1986. Synopsis is as follows. Michael tries to prove a master magician has committed a murder and used his stage illusions to appear on stage during the crime as the perfect alibi. Commentary starts in four, three, two, one. Kid Henderson's dead. I got someone going down the back stairs. One second he was on my scanner, the next he was gone. Austin believes he's a true saucer. He's coming at us head on. Michael, he was in a straitjacket inside a sealed bag and then in chains. Where's Dad? Where is it? He's inside the tank. Dying. Episode starts, and just to kind of set the scene a little bit, it looks like there's an aircraft carrier or some shit floating around in the in the bay there. Basically, you know, you might ask, why is it exactly that I'm wanting to comment on... Of all things that I could possibly comment about, you know, why would I choose Knight Rider? And I guess on top of that... Why specifically this episode? And honestly, there are a lot of reasons for that. First, Knight Rider was one of my favorites when I was a kid. This is a show that I always had a tremendous affection for. I was a big fan. And, you know, keep in mind that I was really only around for the tail end of Knight Rider. I mean, I was really... I remember seeing episodes... Oh, this is just a neat moment. Kid, uh, Kit driving around and he, at nighttime. He's got the headlights up. That just looks so fucking awesome. Anyway... I was really only around for the the uh, fourth episode of not so, sorry not the fourth episode the fourth season of the show. I remember seeing episodes or little bits of episodes, you know, just here and there when I was a kid. But it wasn't something that I avidly followed. Does that make sense? It wasn't something I was a big fan of. But this episode, I'll come actually. You know what? I'll come back to my origin story in a minute. Basically, we've got Templeton, the magician, the great Templeton. He's on stage, and he's doing his, his uh, 
his magical act here. And I do believe this is the first time that I ever saw any kind of stage magic. But before even that, I actually credit this episode of Knight Rider with giving me the love and appreciation for classical music that I have that lasts to this day. Because right now what we're doing is listening to... This is uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Probably Vivaldi's most famous piece, I'd imagine. And anyway, this is uh, really where... If I had to put a thumbtack in the map and say, yep, this is where it all starts, this is pretty much, this uh, This would be it. I don't know why, but there's, ever since then, you know, classical music is just something that I've kind of had a fixation for ever since. And I remember seeing this episode as a kid, and I just thought, you know, this is the kind of villain that Knight Rider had been sorely lacking for, in my opinion, a long time, just to kind of you know, sort of suave, good-looking, just kind of slick type of villain. And this little speech that he gives to Bonnie. And for the most charming young lady, a red rose. It whispers of passion. The white rose breathes of love. Oh, the red rose is a demon. But the white rose is a dove. Until late. Looks like he wants to play singer. I don't know. There's just, I, and I say this as as a heterosexual man. I've always been very secure in that. But he's a good-looking guy. And like I say, this is the kind of villain that you didn't really see a whole lot of on. Knight Rider. Usually it was these sort of Bubba type of guys. And, you know, with lots of mullets and they were driving around in trucks and stuff. And, I mean, I do realize that there is such a thing as having a target demographic for your show. And you want to make things as, I guess, marketable for that demographic as you can. But I kind of liked it, you know, on those few occasions when Knight Rider would poke a toe in, I guess, in the direction of having, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say a more believable villain, because when you think about it, there's really nothing at all about Knight Rider that's in any way believable, so why should the villains be any different? But I guess within the rubric of, you know, the types of stories that you're likely to see on Knight Rider, you, you just didn't really see a whole lot of villains along the lines of along the lines of Templeton. And one of the things that act, that honestly really fixated me about, uh, or not fixated, fucking whatever captivated me about uh, Templeton was the fact that not, it, not, not is he just kind of a smooth type of villain, but he actually does real magic. Well, I say real magic. He does real stage magic in camera. You know, I mean, this isn't the kind of thing that, you know, that the director is editing around. I mean, he does that in a lot of cases, don't get me wrong, but there are a few cases where he's doing tricks and it's all happening in camera. You can see that this stuff is really happening in camera. And so that was just another layer of awesome, at least as far as I was concerned. And it was, it, it, I don't know, it's just a really effective way of, of doing all of this. And... Keep in mind, guys, I mean, I was... Let me think. What was the original air date on this again? 
Yeah, January the 24th, 1986. So I would have been five fucking years old when I saw this. And I did, I wouldn't have even seen it live on TV. I believe Knight Rider came on on Friday nights, but I still wouldn't have seen it on TV because probably there was something else that everyone else wanted to watch. What my grandmother would do is she would tape episodes of stuff, you know, whether it was cartoons or shows or just whatever else. And whenever she filled up the tape, boom, she'd bring it over and, you know, there you go. And one of the things that she would ask us, you know, us grandkids, is, you know, when I'm making these tapes, these VHS tapes, you know, do you want the commercials in or do you want the commercials out? Well, even back then, I mean, I had a little bit of a, of a DVR type of mindset or TiVo mindset, maybe where I didn't want to have to watch commercials if I didn't have to. So I asked her to clip out the commercials. And I didn't really understand what was involved in doing that. I simply knew that it was an option. And I understand today that what it meant was that my grandmother had to watch, in this case, Deadly Nightshade, and then push pause on the VCR when... Oh, this is just a neat little entrance here. You know, the guy comes in the room and there's Templeton in the mirror. And I realize that's done for dramatic effect, but it actually works really well for this type of theatrical type of villain. You know, he would want to... It's not enough that he just... that he kill his mark. He does it in a sort of theatrical way. Even if it's a performance for just one person and that person's about to die, there still has to be a performance aspect to this. And that works for me. But anyway, to get back to the tapes... So what this meant was, uh, in the case of Deadly Nightshade, my grandmother actually had to sit down, tape the shit, watch it, and then she'd have to, like I say, push push pause on the VCR when the commercials would come on. Now, for a show like Knight Rider, I'm sure she wasn't really all that interested in Knight Rider, but I also I don't think it was necessarily, for lack of a better way to phrase it, offensive to her sensibilities. But when you start talking about other things that were on TV at the time, you know, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Thundercats, and all that stuff. And I know that we fans today have a very high appreciation for those types of things. But let's face it, you actually sit down and watch some of that stuff, like He-Man or something like that. And guys, that is just bad, bad, fucking bad TV, you know? So my my poor grandmother, I had to sit there and watch this shit. And not just watch it, like fucking pay attention to it. That way she knew when to pause and unpause the VCR. Anyway, to get back into this episode, though, this was one of the first episodes of this season. And I think by virtue of the fact that the season premiere was a two-parter, this was actually the... This episode, Deadly Nightshade, was the first episode on the latest uh, tape that my grandmother had brought over. And it was, like I say, I mean, you know, Templeton, like to this day, I think he's a badass Knight Rider villain. I mean, he's probably my favorite in the, in the show's entire run. And the type of show that Knight Rider was didn't really lend itself so much to, you know, repeat villains. I mean, you had, the, I think the occasional one like Garth, but otherwise Knight Rider really wasn't known for having repeat villains. God, this is just a neat little chase scene, you know? Usually, it's kind of hard to contrive situations where somebody can get away from, basically escape from Kit by virtue of the fact that he's got this really sophisticated array of technology and sensors and scanners and all this other bullshit. It's really hard to believably develop a way for a villain to get away and 
basically make his escape like that. But, you know, here it's suggested that, you know, Templeton's actually capable of doing that. Now, he has help at, at various points, but yeah, I mean, he's actually capable of doing it. And again, adds another layer of menace to the character that Knight Rider villains aren't they're not exactly known for being well-drawn, well-developed characters, and so the actor really has to go the extra mile with a performance to give the character a, a, a degree of life and sophistication that may not exist on the page. So basically what we know from here is that, for as, as the narrative is unfolding, is that Templeton, for no apparent reason yet, has killed a uh, an affiliate of the Foundation of Law and Government, and now that we're cutting back to the semi truck with the, that uh, chess piece on the side, this is actually one of those moments when I think the writing sort of failed the characters a bit, or it maybe it failed the narrative. Maybe that's the better way to say it, because what we're basically told here is that there are. That's too much of a coincidence. Four of, uh, four members of the, I don't even remember what they fucking call it, like a consortium. Now, considering Max didn't sign those papers, can just you and I award the grants? Yes, of course, Ian. Basically, by virtue of the fact that there are four, four of these members, uh, four members of the consortium. Obviously, Devin being one of them. One of them died a few months ago. One of them was just murdered. There are only two left, and we can be pretty sure that Devin... That, well, actually, number one, we can be pretty sure that this is an inside job. And we can be pretty sure that Devin had nothing to do with it. So pretty much right in this scene right here, we're able to put the handcuffs on the villain, like the real mastermind. We're able to put the handcuffs on him right away. And one of the things that actually, I think, picks this episode up and saves it from being... I don't, I don't want to go so far as predictable, but there's not a whole lot of suspense left in the plot now because we can reasonably guess before the t even the 20-minute mark, actually even before the 15-minute mark of this episode, that, and of course now I'm, I'm blanking on this fucking guy's name, this sort of lumpy middle-aged guy here, but what gives this episode its spark is Templeton himself. I mean, now he's sort of the draw of the episode because it's not so much now a story about how this guy, um, whose name I'm, I'm embarrassed to say is actually escaping me, how he actually makes his getaway. You know, how does he actually do do what he's trying to do, you know, and who is the real villain and all this stuff? Well, if you've got a brain in your head, you've already figured it out that, yeah, he's the guy. Now it's about, well, he's using Templeton. He's Templeton is basically a hitman. And he's got basically a shtick that offers him the perfect alibi. You know, because he's on stage, supposedly, at the time that these murders are taking place. And so no one's going to immediately suspect him of being involved in these murders. And if you think about it, number one, that's a kind of original idea for, for a Knight Rider villain. But number two, it's also just original idea for committing crimes and stuff. Now, it's a little bit hard to believe in, but it's believable enough. I mean, if you can buy into the idea of a talking car that can drive itself, somehow the idea of Templeton being able to do what he does and commit these murders, 
All of a sudden, that's not the biggest obstacle anymore, now is it? Like I say, just a really neat villain, and basically it picks this episode up and saves it from being a little bit of, I, w I wouldn't go so far as to say schlocky, but a little bit predictable, you know? Because, like I say, I mean, this is sort of writing 101. If you've got a four-man group and two members are surviving and one of those members is, his name appears in the opening credits, you can pretty well exonerate him and that leaves only one guy, doesn't it? So, like I say, a little bit predictable, but Templeton is actually what overcomes all of that. And this, this scene right here where he's uh, teaching Bonnie magic tricks, there's a sophistication here that I really wasn't picking up on when I was a kid. Because, you know, kids are weird, or at least maybe I was just a weird kid. I knew that I liked girls, and I knew that there was something that I wanted. It involved girls, and it could, and I could only get it from girls, but at the same time, I didn't really understand the idea of, you know, flirtation and all of these other things, so what Bonnie and Templeton are doing together, this sort of non-date date that they're on, didn't really click with me because, guys, I was fucking five years old. But I was at least astute enough to understand that there's a little bit of a pissing contest going on here between uh, Michael and Templeton. They both know what the other one's really up to. It's really just a matter of Michael finding evidence so that he can nail Templeton. And that's the real trick. This is a good little exchange here, actually. I really enjoy it. Just listen. Okay, remind me never to play cards with you. Look, hiding cards everywhere. Up to some of your old tricks, Templeton? Michael. Sorry to intrude, but I found a hidden door in the alley where I lost Henderson's murderer last night. What a coincidence. Led me right here. This is a very old hotel, Mr. Knight. Its basement is a maze that leads to many places. Now Miss Barstow and I were about to leave for our luncheon, so if you'll please get to the point. I'll show it to you. This is the hood you use in your act, is it not? Indeed, I'm afraid it is. The killer left it behind last night. Perhaps I should have said one of them. You see, Michael, anyone could have taken that hood. Oh, I assure you, Mr. Knight, I'm working on it, but to date, being in two places at one time is a state of being that has eluded me. That's just a good fucking line. Oh, um, interesting little toy. But not to my taste. And that's another good line right there, you know, that... Yeah, Michael's good, but this guy's good too, and he's got skills and talents that Michael doesn't have. I mean, Michael, his instincts are good. I mean, they rarely fail him, but at the same time, Templeton's a slippery son of a bitch, and it's not going to be quite so easy for, for Michael to nail him. I mean, this isn't necessarily a character that you can overcome with force of arms. And on top of all of that, as we'll see later in the episode, he, it's not exactly a, a villain that you can overcome, even with the power of technology. You've got to be smart if you want to catch Templeton. And that's something that I don't know that 
Knight Rider explored as fully as it could have. Because let's face it, I mean, Michael Knight was a, he was a, a kind of rough, two-fisted type of character. You know, a young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent and the helpless and the powerless and a world of criminals that operate above the fucking blah, 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 blah. And so what that usually works out to in... I guess the day-to-day of Michael Knight's life is that he gets in a lot of fist fights, but there are, I guess within the, I guess the, the concept of what, of what Knight Rider is supposed to be, a world of criminals who operate above the law, there's all different kinds and not necessarily all of them are going to be so easily defeated that you can just take them on in a fist fight. And that's a, I mean, number one, that's just an important life lesson right there. But number two, that's something that, it's just basically, it's a new way to challenge Michael and Kit that I don't think had been done maybe ever on Knight Rider, but certainly hadn't been done, it wasn't done often, put it that way. And one of the things that kind of comes out here is, is I guess the sort of, the sort of underworld type of, Thing that the the stage the stage magician community is this whole idea of you know the secret handshake and they have certain customs and there are certain unwritten rules that they all abide by and all of these sorts of things and the stage assistant's dad isn't going to he's not going to roll over on uh, on Templeton probably with anything less than a full-on search warrant if even then. You know, now I happen to think that if you threaten somebody with obstruction of justice, all of a sudden their little secret handshakes and their their insider secrets and all that stuff maybe aren't going to take you all that far after all. I think they'll they'll probably start talking before too long. But it nevertheless is yet another barrier that that Michael Knight is working against here where he has strong reason to believe that Templeton could be guilty of these murders, but now he's got an extra, he's got an extra obstacle that he has to overcome. And that works for me. And then of course, now and then you get silly stuff like this, like this complete fucking bimbo who's trying to flirt with Kit and everything. And I don't know, that, it's a little bit cheesy, but then again, Knight Rider as a TV show could be a little bit cheesy. And I think the reason for that is because Glenn Larson he just had a little bit of a cheesy sense of humor, you know? And when you think about it, you know, so many jokes on TV these days or in movies or whatnot are always about sex. And this is too, but I guess it's got a little bit more of a, like I said, just kind of a cheesy type of uh, tone to it, you know? And then here we have Edward Mulhair. And, you know, this guy is a very accomplished actor he's very talented i have to wonder did it did it ever once keep him up at night knowing that he was in a hit tv show where he's a supporting character to a talking fucking car and it just i don't know just it's one of those things that it, it it makes you wonder but this is where the uh, mystery comes out that yeah templeton was he had the means motive and opportunity to kill the other uh, the other member of the consortium. So basically, we're now down to two. And like I say, I mean, once it's down to two, and one of those two is Devin Miles, you can pretty well figure out who the real mastermind is here, and probably the 
I guess the agenda that the the agenda that the bad guy is trying to the the agenda that the bad guy is trying to accomplish, and this is probably the most inept attempt at. At a, a, a an assassination that I've ever seen, where you steal a fucking hearse and try to run somebody over. I mean, of all things that Templeton might try, because he took that phone call, right, where he says, "Yeah, you know, this is going to be really fucking risky, and so that's going to double my fee, you know, and all of that stuff." And it's like, dude, seriously, your move was to try running over your mark with a fucking hearse. Like, seriously, that that was your idea. What the fuck was risky about that? There's nothing elegant or creative or risky or anything else. Oh, here we go. He goes. In, uh, Michael Knight goes into ski mode. Kit goes into ski mode. And, you know, Knight Rider did that effect a few times. I don't remember that being, like, a major... Like, I, I think we saw ski mode less often than we saw turbo boost. But... Oh, this is... You know, I don't know how the hell you make a, a car chase involving a Trans Am and a hearse interesting, but, you know, hats off to the Knight Rider production crew, because they fucking managed it. But anyway, so, where the hell was I? Yeah, anyway, so you've got basically Templeton. It's like, this is your move. You know, you're going to, you're basically going to steal a hearse, and then that's how you're going to try taking out your, your mark. Like, Really? And it's, I mean, it's a little bit convenient that Templeton happened to have a hearse just like the hearse in the funeral that he coincidentally uh, uh, intersected with and all of that. And I don't know, like I say, I mean, you have to invent reasons for Michael and Kit to not catch up with uh, Templeton right away. But this, you got to figure this would make a kind of, for a kind of funny story, like years down the line that, you know... Aunt Zelda's funeral got interrupted by a, a car chase. Involved, I don't know. Is Mike doesn't would Michael be considered like a federal agent of some kind? I don't know. It's a good question, actually. See, because I always sort of wanted to assume that the Foundation for Law and Government had some kind of I don't deputization that was going on. Ooh, hello. Did you? I don't know if you guys saw that, but. Uh, Kit sort of fishtailed in the middle of the intersection. It looked like the back of the car almost smashed into that telephone pole or whatever the hell that thing was when it when it kind of kicked around in the back. Golly, I'd never noticed that before, but wow, that really could have sucked. Anyway, so now we have what looks to be a head-on collision. And... Again, this sort of emphasizes just how dangerous Templeton really is. Not so much because of his methods... Although there's that. I mean, stealing a hearse isn't exactly the most dangerous thing in the whole world. But whatever. There's, you know, there are his methods. But the other thing is the fact that he's able to escape from this stuff. I mean, you know, you don't necessarily know where and when Templeton is going to strike. And that, I think, is what makes the... Oh, golly. And now we have this, this sort of interstitial, those bumpers with the Super Pursuit Mode version of Kit. And I fucking hate Super Pursuit Mode. Like, I I guess I don't get Super Pursuit Mode. You know, it's it's one of those things that... Like, it, it, I, I've never really been able to get my... Just to, never been able to just wrap my mind around 
what this is supposed because basically it basically it, it lets kit drive faster but he can already drive pretty fucking fast so i ask you sir what's the difference between dr- being able to drive say 150 miles an hour versus 170 miles an hour in super pursuit mo- I mean, what's the fucking difference you know, and I think what we're supposed to infer is that Kid is driving something like 200 some odd miles per hour when he's in super pursuit mode. But I don't think there are very many stretches of road that you're likely to find that are long enough for you to drive at 200 miles an hour for any great length of time. But anyway, whatever. To get back into like the actual episode, though. You know, you have yet another dick measuring contest between Michael and Templeton. And one of the things that that we see here is that, you know, Templeton's fucked up his hand, you know, thanks to that that car crash. And he's good, but even he's got his limitations. And again, I mean, you, you want your villain to be threatening. You don't want him to be all powerful, like the Joker in the Dark Knight, where the guy truly was untouchable, you know? I don't think that's necessarily the most dramatic way to tell a story. And... Anyway, so, not that I'm comparing Knight Rider to The Dark Knight, I'm just saying, fucking whatever. Anyway, so, once again, we've got, you know, Michael flirting with this blonde chick, the stage assistant, and, you know, as far as 1980s television is concerned, I really do think it's a, it's kind of a toss-up, you know, who the bigger pussyhound was between Michael Knight and Thomas Magnum. I would tend to think Michael Knight, but, I don't know, flip a coin, I mean, that really could go either way. Personally, I'd be tempted to at least suggest the fact that it's Michael Knight by virtue of the fact that he had that cool black leather jacket, which you wouldn't necessarily know from watching this episode because it's like he's determined to wear everything but the leather jacket. So, anyway. And here, once again, we've got yet another... I would almost go so far as to say this is a little bit of a redundant scene that the stage assistant's uh, dad isn't going to give up the goods on Templeton. But one of the things that does come out here that is kind of helpful is the fact that Templeton really does consider himself to be a real sorcerer. And, you know, guys, that's something that's just far above and beyond a simple stage magician. And I've, like, I'm not really involved in the world of stage magicians or anything like that. I mean, I, I really, I'm not the guy that would be able to tell you just the ins and outs of that world, how it works and whatnot. But Dr. Browning, that's the old guy's name. Okay, Dr. Browning. All right, got it. Just checking into a few things here. Hold on, guys. I assume you have a plan in mind. Yeah, I'm going to check out his act again tonight. I'm going to take Kit with me. Well, anyway, so... Like I say, I'm no expert on the world of stage magic or anything like that. But... I do know for a fact that some of those guys have some just really fucked up delusions of grandeur. You know, there's what they do... 
and then there's what they think they do, and sometimes those two things can be very different from one another. And I'm not talking about like the pen and teller type of simple stage magic. I mean, some of them really do think that they have special magical abilities, and I'm not talking about making, you know, like pulling rabbits out of hats. I mean, we're talking about like weird fucked up spells and rites and stuff like that. Some of them, so I'm told, really do stuff like that, right? Supposedly. Now, again, I don't know anything about that from firsthand experience. I've just seen a bunch of YouTube conspiracy theory videos and, you know, however much want to, however much credibility you want to give those things, I guess is up to you. But it does stand to reason that the way that some stage magicians talk about their craft, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of inescapable to think that some of them really do believe that they can do some seriously magical type of shit, you know, like sorcery and whatnot. Anyway, so basically, at just over the 30-minute mark in this episode it finally comes out that Dr. Browning is... He's the real mastermind of all of this. He's the man on the inside that got the other two members of the consortium killed. And we obviously know that he's targeted Devin Miles for death. This is where it becomes explicit that he's the mastermind and Templeton is just the the hitman. And like I say, I mean, my personal view is that you could reasonably figure that out all on your own before the 15-minute mark of this episode. But this is... the What we get from this scene in terms of, like, tangible benefit is the... the possibility that, you know what? Templeton, apart from being just a dangerous murderer in his own right... Maybe he's got the skills that are necessary to to uh, to get the drop on Michael and Kit, and so that's I don't know. It's potentially a little bit scary, I guess. I just I remember watching this episode as a kid, and and thinking, you know, wow. If I mean, if he's if he's not afraid of of uh, Kit. And the possibility that, you know what, maybe Kit can use his technology to get the drop on him in his magical act. He's not afraid of that. This guy's got to have some serious skills. So, here we are. We're basically getting now to the first attempt at a confrontation, or at least some sort of a showdown, reckoning, between uh, Templeton and Michael. Michael basically volunteers for the for the magical act. And it's kind of weird that, you know, Templeton, as a matter of, I guess, professional ethics, has to tell the audience that, yes, he does in fact know Michael, but he's not part of the act. Michael is not part of the act. And so the purpose of this is basically to use Kit to try to figure out Templeton's methods and how he's doing stuff, you know, and... Ultimately, you know, I mean, we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but, you know, fucking whatever. It comes out that Kit is not able to figure out how Templeton is doing this stuff. 
And the stage assistant's father suggested that Templeton really does consider himself to be like a real sorcerer. And one of the things I think that we in the audience are supposed to be asking ourselves is whether or not it's possible that Templeton truly, if he truly is some sort of a real sorcerer, is this shit actually happening somehow? And it's kind of interesting to think about the, the fact that, you know what, this episode never actually comes right out and answers that question either way. So if you want to believe that Templeton has some sort of truly magical, by which I mean sorcerer type of skill, some sort of special powers, well, you've got a little bit of a leg to stand on based on what happens, and I think maybe more specifically what doesn't happen in this episode. So do whatever you want with that. But anyway, Kit isn't able to figure it out for reasons that will become apparent in just a little while. And basically, it's almost like Michael and Kit are now back to square zero. Meanwhile, Dr. Browning and Devin are meeting together and they're, and they're discussing these investments. And this is when it comes out as, you know, for, for Devin's uh, participation who exactly Dr. Browning, maybe not who he is exactly, because I'm sure they've known each other for a long time, but more what his game is, you know? And basically what we've... What I think are, a lot of people would have figured out long before this point is that Dr. Browning is really just in it for the money. Uh, there's really no sophisticated higher agenda here. He just wants the fucking money. We're talking about $50 million here, guys. Wait, is it 50 million or 15 million? Because they keep talking about these $15, these $15 million amounts, and it just sort of makes me wonder, you know? So, I don't know. I swear to think it's actually changed, but in any case, this is when Dr. Browning, I guess, decides he needs to take matters into his own hands. And I guess the weird thing about that is. Uh, the weird thing about that is that you couldn't have arranged some sort of an accident or something like that to befall Devon. Because, I mean, it, it's explicitly said earlier in the episode that none of the, none of the deceased members of the consortium ever have to sign anything. If, in the event of their death, then the surviving members inherit their power of attorney. That's the way that the legal arrangement has been structured and so why does Devin need to sign off on anything and I'll tell you why basically he's a main character on the show and nobody wants to kill him so uh, there has to be some kind of excuse to keep him around and that's about as good a one as any you know even though the narrative itself says that he doesn't actually have to be alive and so what we're seeing right now is again a very clear indication of just how dangerous Templeton is, that he's good enough, he can hide a fucking tiger inside of Kit and use that as his means of getting to Michael. And if you think about it, you could chalk something like that up to an honest mistake, like a stagehand didn't empty the car after the, after the magical, uh, after the show, after the act. He didn't... He didn't empty out the car like he should have. So there's, you know, if you think about it, there's some interesting legal plausible deniability going on there that 
very honestly, until this very moment, I hadn't even really considered. But anyway, so you've got a you, you've got a fucking tiger coming after you, and you know, obviously, tigers are very fierce killers. I think they're some of the fiercest killers in the animal kingdom. And so this is a this isn't exactly small potatoes that that Michael is is dealing with here. So, and again, this is we're we're not quite there yet, but. You know, Michael's trying to hold the tiger at bay with the chair. And Kit is about to play this little bit of uh, Mozart. And again, this just goes back to this affection that that I've had for classical music for a long time now. This was... Actually, if I think about it, this is actually the, the uh, third... This is... Yeah, this is actually the third bit uh, the third piece of classical music in the in this episode the first piece was that was the four seasons by vivaldi during the funeral thingy what we heard was toccata which i that's bach i think i know the name of the piece is toccata and i'm pretty sure that's bach and now we're getting some mozart so like i say i mean this is this uh, this episode truly is where I trace back my love and affection for classical music. I mean, it's weird that, of all things, you can trace it back to Knight Rider, which I don't think anybody really associated with, you know, high culture and classical music and fine art and all that stuff. But here we are. So we're getting basically, we're building now towards the the conclusion of the episode, sort of the climax and basically, the fact that Kit's scanners have been deactivated, I'm not really sure how that's possible to do without Kit knowing about it, but whatever. If you can buy that somebody can turn off Kit's scanners without him knowing it, like him just remembering that it happened and then him being aware of the fact that his scanners are turned off, if you can convince yourself of those two things, then it's a pretty easy chain of logic to assume that, you know what, only two people have the technical know-how to turn kit scanners off. One of them is Bonnie, who isn't going to turn kit scanners off for anything. The other one is Dr. Browning, about whom we know nothing, but who has, shall we say, millions and millions of reasons to double-cross Devon. So, like I say, this is a pretty logical... I guess, chain of deduction that people are making. It's just the only thing that kind of throws you is the fact that they probably should have made this this conclusion a little bit sooner. But fucking whatever. It's a TV show. So now the bad guys have Devin Miles in their clutches, and so what are they going to do? Well, it you can be reasonably certain that Devin isn't going to sign whatever they want him to whatever they might want him to sign willingly. And so, oh, I love this. He just pulls that piece of string out of his jacket, does his magical who's he what's us to it, and that's how he gets his handcuffs. <laughs> just fucking love it. He has to do everything the complicated way. And now we're back to the stage assistant's father, and it's basically the don't ask me shit three times guy from Austin Powers. I need you to tell me about Templeton. What are his secrets? No, I cannot tell you. Come back later. I need you to tell me about Templeton. What are his secrets? No, I won't tell you. <sighs> okay. 
I need you to tell me about Templeton. What are his secrets? Okay, you can find him here. This is where he keeps all of his, all of his stage props and all of his secrets. Get out of here. You know, it's like the three times guy. So whatever. But it's convenient for the for the narrative, so we go with it. So now, excuse me, actually. Oops. Excuse me while I get a oh fuck super pursuit. Oh jeez. Wait, wait. Excuse me while I have a drag off of my e-cig here. So, Super Pursuit Mode. My guess is that there was a rule in the fourth season that Super Pursuit Mode had to be used once in every single episode, no matter how fucking unnecessary it might be, as it was here. So, whatever, they worked it in, but it's when you think about it, Super Pursuit Mode is just a really retarded idea. So, anyway... Devin's about to go into the dunk tank and and drown and whatnot. And, it, you know, this is actually one of those things where you kind of have to wonder what exactly was Templeton's exit strategy here? I mean, number one, why not just shoot the guy in the head? But number two, uh, you know, presupposing that you do drown the guy, well, people are going to want to know how in the high holy fuck somebody drowned in your little warehouse there, and so how did that happen? And it's a lot easier to just... I don't know, maybe they were planning to dump his ass in the harbor. I have no friggin' idea. But it just, it, it makes you wonder, you know, what, how was he planning to get away with this, you know? Why is this so much more preferable to just killing the guy? I mean, yeah, I know that Templeton has a taste for theatricality, but, you know, what's up with that? So, anyway, in terms of the episode, God, I love this. Uh, Templeton, he gets chased by Kit. Boom, he just throws his disappearing who's he what's us and that's how he gets away from kit then he reappears in front of michael and you know again if you want to read this as actual sorcery you can but there are plausible scientific explanations for all of this stuff you know trap doors and whatnot and all of that stuff is actually it's all it's pretty easy to believe now what is not so easy to believe is that in just a couple of seconds kit is going to Again, he just has to use his little magical shit here with his fight with Michael. But anyway, so how is Kit, you know, a super computer, basically? How is he able to affect a non-electronic device like a, like a padlock, you know? How is that possible? So, I don't know. The episode never tells... In fact, I don't think the TV show ever tells us. But it does kind of make you wonder... How would Kit unlock handcuffs, you know? It's a mystery. So, anyway, this is kind of the Super Friends sort of ending of the show. And it's kind of interesting to think that, you know, TV shows were a lot longer, or relatively longer, back in the 80s when they didn't have to play so fucking many ads and stuff. So, anyway. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons that I think this this episode has always just kind of stuck with me over the years is the fact that I hadn't really seen any kind of stage magic. You know, when I was a kid, I'd never actually seen anything like that before. 
and like either on TV or in person or anything like that. And those sort of tricks and the sleight of hand and the illusions and whatnot. It was one of those things that just really captivated my childhood imagination. Not to such a degree that I wanted to be a stage magician myself, but it's, it's just something that I've always thought was just really neat and kind of fun and interesting, you know? So anyway, that I think is where this is where that sort of comes from, you know, that interest in stage magic and whatnot. It all goes back to this episode, I think. And so here we go. We get the Super Friends ending. Kit backs out. Everyone laughs, you know. And that is the end of the episode. And it would be a mistake to say that I'm doing this entirely for Andy Leyland. But it would be a lie if I said he wasn't on my mind during part of this commentary as I was giving it. So that, I think, is pretty much it for me. Basically, what I'm going to do is just take a break and I'll be right back after these messages. Okay, doing the new promo, do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Dot com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Okay, I'm back now and I've got a little bit of feedback that I want to go through here. Told you I'd get back to feedback eventually. You see, guys, 
For the past, I don't even know how long, I haven't even really had too much of a chance to talk about feedback. And the reason for that is because most of the shows that I've recorded lately, they've really been too long to kind of lend themselves to doing a whole lot of feedback. So what I wanted to do to kind of counteract all of this was deliberately do shows that I knew would run a little bit short. That way I could make up the difference by going through a little bit of feedback in every episode and hopefully get caught up before too long. So anyway, now in relation to that, the first bit of feedback and maybe the only bit of feedback I'll go through just kind of depends on how long it takes to get through this, but because I've got quite the backlog here, but the first bit of feedback at the very least that I'm going to be talking about, this is an email that came in from my loyal subject. His name is Brian Hughes. The title is Superman Returns, and it is dated, just to tell you how fucking far behind we are with all of this. The date on this thing is January the 20th, 2015, 2015. So it's a pretty fucking long time ago, I would say. And anyway, so title of the email is Superman Returns, and Brian Hughes writes, To our magnanimous ruler. Remember that all of the money spent on previous attempts to make a Superman movie, including Burton's failed attempt, were lumped in as part of the budget of Superman Returns. There was no way it was going to make its money back. And just, I guess really right from the start, I got to put this email kind of on hold for a minute and say, you know, a lot of people mention the fact that the production costs or the pre-production costs or or basically the expenses for previous Superman films were attached to Brian Singer's movie and that drastically inflated his budget. As a matter of fact, Box Office Mojo shows a, a, a budget for Superman Returns of $275 million. And the thinking goes that these are expenses that Superman Returns shouldn't be responsible for. And on the one hand, I can kind of understand that mentality because of the fact that Brian Singer had nothing to do with those previous efforts at making a movie. So why should he be held responsible for him? And I'll tell you why. The reason why Superman Returns is held responsible for production costs incurred before Brian Singer was ever even a blip on the radar is because of the fact that Superman Returns is the eventuality of all of Warner Brothers' attempts to, to executive produce a Superman movie, right? This is the outcome of all of that. Now, in business, whenever you're developing a new product or what have you, you have to report all of your expenses, all of your profits, everything, to the government for purposes of taxation, right? And the reason for that is, is precisely so that people don't invent phony baloney projects that have eaten up all of their annual profits and then presto, they don't have to pay any, uh, they don't have to pay any taxes that year. You know, basically, whether people realize it or not, what they're basically saying whenever they, they argue that Superman Returns shouldn't be held responsible for previous production costs, they're basically saying that corporations, these huge giant media conglomerates in particular, ought to have the ability to dodge taxes at will, right? Whether they realize that's what they're arguing or not, in effect, that's what they're arguing. So 
From a legal standpoint, Warner Brothers has no choice but to attach previous production costs to Superman Returns. Now, they may be prepared to write those off in terms of, you know, the benchmark of what is and is not, quote unquote, a success at the box office. But make no mistake about it, the government has a very fucking different opinion on the matter. And if Warner Brothers were to fully comply with what fans believe they should do, you know, do the right thing, you know, members of their board, their CEO, their CFO, and other people could face arrest for that, you know? That's against the fucking law. You don't get to do that. So, again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or mean or anything like that, but, you know, you guys need to understand what you're really advocating for here, you know? So, just something to be aware of. Now, to get back into... Actually, no, before I get back into his email, um, I want to say that Superman uh, Superman Returns had a worldwide box office of $391 million, and $200 million of that was United States domestic box office. $191 million of that was international box office. So grand total, $391 million. And that may sound impressive, but unfortunately it's not about the bottom line. Or at least it's not just about the bottom line, you know, how high can we go? The cost of the movie pretty much dictates how successful a, uh, how successful it is based over and against, and I guess relative to, the worldwide box office, all right? So just for the sake of argument, let's say that Superman Returns cost 300 million, or sorry, it cost 30 million to make. It didn't, but for the sake of argument, let's say that it did, all right? If it cost $30 million to make and, it, and then it goes on to earn $391 million at the uh, uh, worldwide box office, that's a shitload of profit. That's a shitload of profit. And by any objective standard, that movie must be a success. There's just no way around, you know? Unfortunately for everybody concerned, that is not the production cost of Superman Returns. The, the lowest that anybody is willing to go in terms of expenses that Brian Singer is legitimately responsible for looks to be about $215 million. That was the supposed price tag of bringing... Superman returns to the big screen. $215 million, right? And of course, that just that ignores marketing expenses and distribution costs and all these other things. Just to make the fucking movie. $215 million, that's the lowest anybody is willing to say, right? So, a movie needs to earn double its, bo- uh, double its production costs at the box office in order to... Uh, go into the black right so 215 million dollar production costs you double that so obviously that means 430 million dollars so 430 million dollars is the minimum superman returns would have needed to make at the box office in order to turn a profit and it earned 391 million dollars worldwide at the at the box office so even if we go just by the the expenses, the production costs incurred by Brian Singer, Superman Returns still lost money. It still fell pretty fucking far short of the mark, right? And this was after something like six months 
in release uh, at theaters. It's not like half of that was made at the uh, was made an opening weekend or something like that. I mean, believe it or not, I want to say it was I don't know the exact number, but I it, I think it's significantly less than half of Superman Returns' box office, at least in the United States, was made during its opening weekend. So, again, what we're seeing here is a movie that just wide audiences just did not like. They did not enjoy this movie. And in fact, I think a very strong argument could be made. They pretty much ignored it. Which is maybe the worse insult than not liking it. Apathy is the true opposite of love. Hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is the opposite of love. And audiences pretty much turned their noses up to Superman Returns. They didn't go see it, you know? So, it's really quite... It's really quite as simple as that. But anyway, so, to get back into uh, Brian's Brian's email, he writes, In the end, Superman Returns made $9 million less than $400 million, but because of everything that got lumped into it, the movie would have to make half a billion dollars to, to break even for Yakko, Wacko, and Don. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, You know, movies, even during, I guess, the release window of Superman Returns, it was not uncommon for a movie to make half a billion dollars. I mean, you know, that's a definite, definitely that's a successful movie, an incredibly successful movie for that time, but that's still doable if wide audiences love the movie, you know? So, Brian, what you're basically saying here is that Superman Returns fell at least $109 million short of its, uh, of its profitability threshold and honestly i don't think it was half a billion dollars i mean the math that i just walked through the movie cost 215 million dollars to make generating 430 million dollars at the at worldwide that's that's a that was a realistic goal even back in 2006 movies did that all the time even back then so again to me the only logical conclusion here is that wide audiences just weren't into uh, Superman Returns. They just didn't get into it, you know? It's really as simple as that. Anyway, to get back into the email, Brian writes, The only way to get butts in the theater seats was to give Superman a foe to fight on screen that could go toe-to-toe with him. What we got was Brian Singer's love letter to Richard Donner instead, which is not what the Superman fans wanted then. Thanks. Signed, Brian Hughes. And, you know, Brian, I agree. I think uh, by, certainly by the early 2000s, most Superman fans, what they wanted was, they wanted a movie where Superman fights somebody who can punch on his level and really go toe-to-toe with somebody because of the fact that we never really saw that in live action prior to then. And they did not get that with Superman Returns. So, like I say, I don't want you to come off from all of this thinking that, you know, I'm criticizing you, I'm bashing on you, or I'm making fun of you, because, dude, I wouldn't do that, all right? I'm not going to make fun of my listeners uh, to their face, so to speak, or or behind their back. I'm just not going to do it. You know, I, I like you guys. I respect you guys. I'm grateful that you listen. I'm not going to make I'm not going to make fun of you in public or in private. It's just not going to happen, you know? I love you guys. So, certainly I don't want you to think that any of this is intended to be 
you know, shit talk against you. So, because it's not. It's just that I think the just the plain, simple numbers of Superman Returns tell a very different story than than what's in this email here. So, you know, maybe this is just something that you and I need to agree to disagree about. But, you know, uh, like I say, I don't want you to... I don't want you to even think that, you know, you're being criticized here. Because like I say, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I need you to understand, Brian, you know, my disagreement with you, this isn't me, you know, uh, talking shit or anything like that, you know? So I just, I hope you understand that. So, and... Wouldn't you know, this is actually um, kind of an interesting little length uh, for uh, for this little round of feedback. I mean, this is pretty much what I needed it to be. So I think that's going to be pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, uh, basically what I've gotten uh, what, what I've gotten mind to do, well, at least what I want to talk about, is this is going to be a little bit of a, I guess, sort of one-on-one kind of a thing. Uh, just It's going to be basically just me and the listeners and also a little bit of feed forward rather than feedback i've actually got some feed forward that i want to talk about next week and basically next week is going to be another entry in behind the headset it's going to be i guess for lack of a better way of putting it trennis magnus versus dc comics now i originally mentioned that i was going to be talking about this at the end of episode number 145 which was my, I guess, my conclusion for the Brother Fights Brother Civil War miniseries that I did. I originally announced that this episode was coming at the end of that episode, but it ended up getting delayed because there were other things that I wanted to work through. So, you know, Michael Bailey came on the show and he and I did shoot the shit. And then in this episode, I did a a Knight Rider commentary because what I wanted to do was kind of stack things in such a way that I can start answering some of this feedback and stuff that I get. So that's, that's really the ambition here. That's what I was, that's what I was thinking. So, uh, and for that reason, next week is going to be behind the headset, Trinus Magnus versus DC Comics for lack of a better way to phrase it. And I've also, like I say, I've got a little bit of feed forward because I put up a little announcement on the Facebook page for Trinus Magnus Punches Reality that I'm going to be talking about this. And so, I want to say a couple of hours after I put that up, I recorded that segment, by which time I had a little bit of feed forward to work through. So, that was kind of fun. So, that's going to be what I'm talking about for next week, and I think that is pretty much it for me this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week to talk about DC Comics. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com. And notes, 
essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.